1985, a flagrant tech company was fed up with their loudmouth, obnoxious, somewhat egomaniac CEO and forcefully removed him from power, a company that he had started many years earlier. Although they had given him kind of a puppet role within the, communi- within the company, rather, uh, this role proved to really be insufficient for a man who thought he should run the world. And so the two parted ways. It was quite a bold move for this particular company at the time. And the hope was to reposition itself to becoming a leader in innovation and technology. But, as time would tell, the new leadership proved to run the company slowly into the ground. By the late 1990s, this company became what was one of the worst companies in all of America. It was soon to close its doors. By 1997, this once promising giant was knocking on death's door. Then, in what proved to be a surprising turn of events, they recalled their former CEO, the one who had started the company so many years earlier, and he retook the helm. He reinvented their dismal product line and reinvented the company, which proved to be what was perhaps one of the greatest turnarounds in all of American economic history. Of course, the story of Apple has proved to be, even today, a powerhouse of technology and growth. What was, just a matter of months ago, the largest company in the world before it was eclipsed by Amazon. Uh, The story of Apple, of being a great turnaround in, in all of really the last century and a half, is something that was once dead and brought back to life. But of course, as Christians, we know that what many talk about is a great turnaround story. Uh, We prove and understand that our own lives are the greatest turnaround stories. Stories that are told. They're not stories of CEOs and corporate mergers, but rather of stories about dead people, spiritual corpses that are brought back to life. No, our stories about what God has done for us in Christ by making us spiritually alive are the greatest turnaround stories we will ever hear. And this morning, we want to think more about this turnaround story, about how our lives have been turned around, how we were once on a fast train to hell, and, but by grace, God has intervened and turned us around. Of course, Paul has been writing this letter to encourage the Christians there in the Lucian Valley, uh, there in Ephesus and the surrounding countryside. He began by reminding them of all the rich blessings they had in Christ, that this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, had saved them. They had concocted this plan from eternity past. This wasn't God's plan B, but rather from the beginning From before God ever created the first molecule, he had purposed to save sinners through the death of his son. From eternity past, God had planned and purposed our redemption. And so by meditating on these rich blessings, Paul was led to thanksgiving and prayer. He prayed that this church in Ephesus would know more of God. And so as Christians, we trust that we want to know God better in our own lives. 
Uh, We pray that we would be able to grasp what is the height and love and depth of Christ's love for us. He concluded this prayer of his in verses 19 through 23, praying that we would know the power of God. And as we saw last week, this power is not just out there, but in here. God has saved sinners. Those who were once dead have been raised to life. Those who were once rebels, those who once hated God, are now welcome to his table. This is what we want to think about this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. So I invite you to turn there, if you have not already, page 976 in the Pew Bibles. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Christians are those who were once spiritually dead. We trust that we were once spiritually dead, but have now been raised to new life and given a new status, all for God's glory. In other words, Paul writes to tell us that God has done this for one purpose alone, and that is for his glory. God saves by grace through faith for his glory alone. And so this morning, I want us to consider these three aspects. First, we see in the text the basis of God's work, the the foundation. What is it that God used as a basis for saving sinners? Next, we'll see uh, not only the basis, but the result. What resulted when God acted? What did God do? And then finally, we'll see the purpose, uh, why God saves sinners. Sometimes we think that God saves sinners because of us. Or rather, we are a byproduct of this, rather to see that God saves for his glory alone in Christ. Well, we've noticed here first in verses two, or excuse me, verses four and five, uh, rather, that, that you have been saved Because God is rich in mercy and love. God saves because of his character. It is the character of God that motivates him to act. Notice with me first in verse 4, Paul says that God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. He began this chapter with incredibly bad news, right? Uh, This is the news we considered last week, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. He reminded the Ephesians that apart from Jesus Christ, they were spiritually and morally dead. But this was true not only of them, but of us. We were rotting corpses. We were unable to do anything but to decay into death. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, acted. While you and I were wasting away, following the rest of humanity, God was at work. God acted. Paul tells us in verse 4 and 5 why God acted. It was because of his rich mercy and love. God acts so that he might display his character to the world. We had done nothing in our lives to merit this love or mercy. It wasn't because we were improving our lives or because we had come to God. No, it wasn't because there was some future potential in us that God sort of looked down through the corridor of time and foresaw, which merited our salvation. No, none of these. Frankly, if we had done anything to deserve God's salvation, well, brothers, sisters, we would not be saved by grace, but by work. Paul says that God acted to save sinners because he was rich in mercy. While the men of this world gather together the wealth of this world, Uh, to pursue abundant wealth. Paul says that God has wealth for which no man could ever get his greedy hands on. God is rich in mercy. Uh, This is one of Paul's favorite words in the book of Ephesians, the word rich. Uh, He likes to talk about God being rich, but not in the ways this world is rich. God is loaded, right? Uh, He is loaded. He has an account full of mercy. Now, mercy means that God has compassion on sinners. Uh, Mercy is not grace. Mercy is different than grace, as we'll see in a moment. Mercy means that God doesn't punish those who deserve to be punished. God forgives those who don't deserve to be, be forgiven. Oftentimes, my children do things, surprisingly, that deserve punishment. And my wife is very merciful. I am not. But sometimes, you know, they look at you and, and you just like, you want to have mercy on them. You, you don't want to punish them. You just, you, you, you don't punish them, right? You have mercy, you have compassion on them because you trust that, well, the four-year-old was doing what four-year-olds do, Right? And God has compassion on us. We were sinners doing what sinners do. And God has compassion. Though we rightly deserve God's wrath, He has mercy on us. Friends, God's mercy does not negate His justice. We still deserve judgment for our sins. The Christian gospel is not about trying to mitigate and relegate sin to some other category. In other words, make sin not sin. No, God acts in mercy, as we'll see in a moment, by dealing with our sin. But he deals with it in a way that is surprising. Of course, this is God's character. Throughout the Bible, we are told that God is merciful. Sometimes we have this really strange idea about God that, you know, the Old Testament God was like the bad God, like the mean God. He wasn't very nice. And then the good God came, the really nice, you know, the bad cop, good cop thing. But brothers, that's just not true. 
Sisters, that's not true. Elsewhere in the Bible, we are told that God is a God of mercy. Paul tells Titus that we were saved according to God's own mercy. Uh, Peter would write to the churches there in Asia Minor and say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Where did Paul and Peter get these ideas from? That God was great in mercy. Was it because they thought that, man, this new God that showed up is nicer? No, because they knew their Old Testament really well. They had actually read it and memorized it. You see, this idea of God's great mercy stretches back all the way into the Old Testament. When Moses asked God to reveal himself, he he said, God, can I see you? He was up on Mount Sinai and he, he, he said, God, can I see you? When he saw God, this is what he recorded. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It was the Lord's mercy that David appealed to. When Nathan confronted him in his sin and he wrote Psalm, one, Psalm 51 as a prayer of confession, confessing his sin, he, he cried out to God and he said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Brothers, sisters, the point is that God saves according to this by the standard of his mercy. By his mercy. For his glory. We see also then in verse four that God's character is not only one of mercy, but of love. Paul structures this sentence in such a way as to give us the cause of God's actions. What was it that motivated God to forgive sinners? Was it because we were lovable? No, but because he was love. Look again in verse four. Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because. See that little word? Because the cause of God's action was his love. What caused God to move into action to rescue sinners was, as Paul says, his great love with which he loved us. God saves according to his own mercy. And what caused him to go into action was his love for his people. Look there again. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Well, who is the us there that Paul is talking about? Who is it that God had great love for? Well, that us stretches all the way back to verse 5 of chapter 1. Look there again. Chapter 1 in verse 5. In love, there it is, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God's love is a sovereign love. His love is a particular love. God loves and is sovereignly uh, gracious towards his elect sinners. And this is what Paul taught us back there in, uh, in chapter 1, that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. In the same context of that text I read in, 
Exodus chapter 34, moments earlier, God had revealed that truth to Moses. That yes, I am a God of mercy, but, and this is a big but, I will show mercy to whomever I want to show mercy. In other words, God's mercy is only towards those he wants to show mercy. The point is this. You do not deserve God's mercy. Nobody deserves God's mercy. No one deserves salvation. We live in a culture of entitlement. We live in an entitlement culture. We feel that we are entitled to certain things. Certain things from the government. Uh, We feel certain entitlement from our parents. We feel certain entitlement from society at large. We feel entitled. And God, in his grace, tells us, you are entitled to nothing. Because you willingly rebelled against me, you are entitled to hell. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us. But God, in his sovereign mercy, acts This is why John would write, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, God's love moves him to have compassion on sinners like us. Well, Paul goes on here in verse 4 and 5 to give us the reason why God acted. Why did God act? What was the reason that God sprung into action and saved sinners? Brothers and sisters, this is tremendously good news. Look with me at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. He picks up what he began in verse 1. He seems to have a, a kind of taken a, a side road here. And he's returning, reminding us again in verse 1. That we were morally and spiritually dead. We had no ability to act nor respond to God. Brothers and sisters, I know this is not innovative, but dead people can't speak. Nor can they hear. We had no ability to act nor respond to God. I've gone to a few funerals before, and something I've noticed at those funerals is... uh, Uh, Those that once had hearing aids don't have those hearing aids in their ears anymore. wonder why that is. Because dead men can't hear. Paul's point is that salvation has nothing to do with you from beginning to end. This is tremendously good news this morning, brothers and sisters. Because if God began a good work in you, he will complete that good work. This is why he goes on to say that salvation is by grace alone and not by works. Well, Paul gives a fuller treatment of this whole idea that he presents. And really, um, I think it's quite fascinating. If you study Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, what it seems to be is Paul's sort of summary statements on Romans chapters 3 through 9. Uh, What Paul does there in in a fuller treatment uh, he condenses down here in Ephesians. But, but nonetheless, in Romans 5, he writes this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare die. But God 
shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Friend, I hope that you are convinced this morning that God loves you. Right? We love those who love us in return. We learn, we, we pick that up pretty quickly, right? We're, we're kind of like dogs, right? We, we, we tend to like love our owners because they love us back and they pet us and they, they treat us well. And so we, we care for them well. But Paul's point is, is that we were unloving. We were, there was nothing about us that, that deserved or merited God's love. But God, in his grace, sent Christ to the cross to die in our place. Brothers, the Christian Christian gospel reminds us that God is rich in mercy towards dead sinners like us. And this brings tremendous encouragement and hope to us this morning. Because we still wrestle in our sin. sin. We still struggle in our sin. And God still is merciful today. As we sang earlier this morning, God's mercy is always going to be more. Always going to be more. And so this morning, if you are in sin, if there is some sin entangling you, brother or sister, know that his mercy is more. Turn from your sin and trust in him. Why is the gospel called the good news? Why did the the New Testament writers pick a word that meant good news, a, a, a word of celebration? Because believer, you did not merit salvation. You did not deserve salvation. And it stands to reason that if you didn't deserve it and you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. If you didn't save yourself, then you can't unsave yourself. If you didn't rescue yourself, if he didn't. Well, the point remains. If God freely chose to love you, then he will not by his own character remove such love from you. Rather, we know that our salvation is a display of God's sovereign mercy and love towards us as sinners. This is what makes the gospel good news. Well, let's go on. We've been saved because God acted. And I want to see here in verses 5 through 6 what has resulted. God has saved you and by giving you new life and a new status. I want us to see kind of what you get in this deal. What do we get in salvation? We get a new life and a new status. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, Paul has been writing this entirely long sentence from verse 1 all the way down through verse 10 without a verb, without a main verb. And the main verb comes right here in verse 5, made us alive together. Made us alive. Those who were once dead are put back to life, are brought back to life. They are resuscitated. Ones who were spiritually dead have been made alive. Well, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about nothing more than the new birth, right? Regeneration. Uh, God has regenerated our dead souls. He has breathed spiritual life and, and vitality in them again. As Jesus cried at the door of Lazarus' tomb, he said, what? Come, get up, Lazarus. 
Lazarus couldn't get up until the sovereign God called him. Christ's call was effectual. It brought life where there is death. Friends, this is why we believe that ability precedes belief. We were dead and we couldn't hear until the effectual call of God came upon us. Because we can't hear, we could do nothing. But God in his grace made us alive. We cannot hear the spirit of God until he brings us back to life. This is what God promised through the prophet Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel 36, we know it well. He promised the, through the prophet, he says, I will, give, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We know that, right? Ezekiel 36. But you know what comes after Ezekiel 36? Well, Ezekiel 37. And the valley of dry bones. What God did is he says, all right, I have promised this is what's going to happen. And, and let me just take you out here and illustrate for you what I mean, Ezekiel. You see these dead bones? Speak and they're going to come alive. God gave him a foretaste of, of what Paul is talking about here. This is why Paul writes in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing, hearing through the words of Christ. In other words, when you hear the gospel preached, God uses the word of God, carried along by the spirit of God, to create the people of God. God uses men and women to create life where there was death. So we preach, we declare the gospel, the spirit takes it, creates life. Then there's responding faith and new life. No more could those dead bones come alive than you and I can come alive apart from the work of God. Notice here that we are raised to new life. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. Raised us up with him. Notice here the repetition throughout of with Christ. We're going to think more about this in a moment. But it is through our union of Christ. Now we've already noted throughout that Christ is the means and basis of our salvation. You wonder why Paul went to such lengths in chapter 1 and verse 19 through 23 about what God did in Christ. Notice the parallel between the two. That God raised Christ up. He's raised us up with him. We've noted already in our study of chapter 1 that it's through Christ we are saved. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. This is why Jesus would tell Martha, before he raised Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Spiritual life, new life, comes through Jesus Christ. This is what the great theologian and teacher of the Jews a man by the name of Nicodemus had to learn. 
You'll remember that one night he snuck out under the cover of darkness to speak with Jesus. And he had a few questions for Jesus, particularly about the kingdom of God and how one knows the kingdom of God, how one knows the greatness of God. And Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is Paul's point. You and I have been raised to new life. What has happened to Jesus has happened to us. When Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I were raised spiritually with him. We have been given a new life. And this is why I stress so often to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about a better version of you. Some spruced up, cleaned up version of yourself. God is not interested in you being a better person, but rather being a new person. If not, we're just a bunch of gross zombies walking around still with rotting fleshes. No, what was dead is now alive. The the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not about zombies, right? Like dead things walking around. Jesus Christ, when he was raised from the dead, he didn't stink. He had a new body. He was resurrected unto life. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Brothers, sisters, this means that whatever sin you did in your old life, is dead. This is why we joyfully sing. Brother, you don't need to fret any longer about the sins you committed before Christ saved you. Because God has cast them as far as the east is from the west. A popular practice today is cremation. Cremating the body. And then some people go sprinkle the ashes around places, so on and so forth. That's kind of the image that the psalmist is using there. That we have been cremated. Our old life has been cremated and it is gone. It, it, it just blows away in the wind. In Christ, your old life is gone. This is why we don't use that Darwinian language of the afterlife. It's a Darwinian language, by the way. That's evolutionary afterlife stuff. That was Darwin, not Jesus. Because if you're in Christ, your new life is already here. Eternity has already begun. You shall not die, he says, but live. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's blown away. It's it's dead. Behold, the new has come. The great theologian and defender of the faith, J. Gretchen Machen, wrote less than a century ago. And really at the heart of liberalism and fundamentalism was the debate about regeneration and the new birth. And Machen wrote this tremendously helpful word to us. He says, these words here of Paul involve a tremendous conception of the breaking that comes in a man's life when he becomes a Christian. It is almost as if the, that he becomes a whole new person. So stupendous is the change, he says. 
These words were not written by a man who believed that Christianity means merely the entrance of a new motive into life. Paul believed with all his mind and heart in the doctrine of the new creation or the new birth. That one was once dead is now alive. But not only are we raised to life, look at what Paul says in verse 5 again. Excuse me, verse 6. That God has made us alive by raising us up with Christ and seating us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We kind of miss that. We get all excited about raised to life. Woo! But Paul says, not only have you been given a new life, you've been given a new status. Now, throughout this book of Ephesians, that phrase, heavenly places, uh, shows up over and over again, which leads us to believe that there was an, uh, uh, maybe a very strong uh, obsession in the church, maybe a distraction with principalities and powers of darkness. A- angel worship, uh, perhaps demonic worship, this, this obsession with the spiritual realm. Uh, this obsession with powers greater than themselves. And so Paul writes to them and says, listen, you have been given a new status in Christ through the gospel that you are now in a greater authoritative role than all of these spiritual forces that you're freaked out about. I see this often in, in our own contemporary culture. With a sort of obsession about demonic forces. Like Satan made me do it. Uh, I'm worried about Satan. I'm worried about demon oppression and possession. Brothers and sisters, our union with Christ has brought us to a status in which we have greater authority in our lives. While we live in the tension of the already and not yet. Like, so, so I don't believe, so I think Calvin's wrong in many ways. And this is one way Calvin was really, really wrong. Is he believed that through the Lord's Supper, one metaphysically was transported into heaven and is sitting with the, in the throne room with God. And I think he was really wrong there. Right? So, so sort of that we live in a tension of already, but not yet. So we have been raised with Christ, but we have not yet fully been raised with Christ. Right? We wait for that, the second resurrection. Uh, we have already been seated with Christ, but we wait to be seated with Christ in, in heaven. But Paul's point remains the same. We are presently given authority as sons and daughters of the king. We are reigning and ruling with Christ. This, of course, will become important in chapter 6. When Paul tells the church to put on the armor of God and go to battle. Why? Because you have authority over principalities and powers of darkness. You're sons and daughters of the king. Your authority is greater As John reminds us, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he 
who is in the world. Brothers, sisters, let us embrace all of the past tense that these these verbs present ourselves. You have been made alive. You have been saved. You have been raised. You have been sealed. Paul's point is it's done. It is finished. And so we have life without fear of death, fear of devils, and fear of the flesh. We we don't need to fear the world. We don't need to fear the devil. We don't need to fear our flesh. But know that we have been brought to new life and new status. We'll finally look here at verse 7. We've seen the basis. We've seen the result. And now I want to show you the reason. Uh, What is Paul's purpose? What's the purpose here? Why has God done this? Well, verse 3, verse 7, excuse me. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In short, the purpose of our salvation is the glory of God. God saves for his glory. He saves so that he can get all the credit. God saves that he might show off This character of his, of mercy, grace, and love. God saved so that everyone would say how awesome he is. How great he is. Notice here again, Paul describes God's character, as he did earlier, as immeasurably rich. God here is, his abundant grace is beyond measure. One cannot ever be able to measure the tremendous grace of God. He has saved countless millions for his glory, which requires an abundant amount of grace. And I don't think Paul uses this language by accident here, but rather to draw our mind back up to verse 19, where he writes... As he prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul says that God's grace is immeasurably great. Which means that we can never outdo God in his grace. We can't annoy him too much. Where he says, I'm done. I've had enough. No, his grace is without measure. It's too big, too massive, and too exhaustive. The countless millions he would save is too much. And so, brother and sister, know today that God will never reach a point with you in your life where he will say, I am, I'm done. I'm, I've ran out of grace. I don't have any more for you. Know today that God will never turn you away. For all of eternity, he'll never run out. This is what is so wonderful about the Christian gospel is that God not only forgives us our sin, which is incredibly great. Thank you for forgiving us. And we could all go home just thanking God and celebrating today that he forgave us. But he doesn't just say, you're forgiven. 
but he bestows on us rich blessings of kindness towards us in Christ, right? He doesn't say you're forgiven. He says, come on home with me. I want to give you everything that's mine. Through our union with Christ, we receive all the rich blessings that are Christ. This is why it does us well to meditate on the relationship between the Father and the Son. And all those times Jesus talks about in John's Gospel, about he and the Father are one, and how the Father just pours out blessings on him all the time in John 14. Well, by extension, all of those come to us. All of those become ours. Oh, we don't deserve them. Our brother R.C. Sproul helpfully reminds us that the whole goal of our salvation is to bring us to a place where we worship God and we honor him as God. The great danger is that we make ourselves the center of this concern and we steal, rob the glory of God. In all that we do, the driving passion of the Christian must be solo Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory. And the only way for this passion to be realized is for you and I to honor God as God. To understand him as he has revealed himself in his word and not according to the mere opinions of fallen creatures. Brothers and sisters, the point is that God doesn't really save for us. Nor really for any other purpose than himself. God saves so that everyone would see his, his character. Perhaps you were the favorite in the family, the sort of poster child. You know, it's the one your parents always talked about. Well, it's great being that one, right? It's the, the one that's really bad as the, when you're not that, right? You're not the one they talk about. And sometimes we kind of think that, the, that we're like the poster children of God. Like God just, whoa, he just can't stop talking about us. And that's kind of not really what God's doing. He's, what he's doing is he's saying, look how messed up they are. Look how screwed up their lives are. It's kind of the opposite, right? And he does that so that everyone will say, wow, God, you are really merciful, gracious, and loving that you put up with that for so long. Brothers and sisters, do you recognize and trust that all of our time in eternity will be fulfilling what Paul prophesies here in verse 7? That our time will be consumed with plumbing the depths of God's mercy and grace in ways that maybe we don't even recognize today. No, we will spend our time considering how great God's love for us in Christ. We will pass our time thinking about God's grace he showed us in all of those times that we were undeserving and unworthy. And so let's begin doing that today. Let us spend our time reminding ourselves that God saves for his glory alone. Brother, sister, you were spiritually dead. Nothing more than a stinking, rotting corpse. Your life stank. Everything about you stank. But then God did something about it. God spoke and you came alive. And you've been raised with Christ. 
You've been given a new life and a new status, all for God's glory alone, so that he might put his character, his abundant mercy, love and grace on display. Grace that cannot be measured, grace that can never be exhausted, grace that you and I will spend eternity contemplating. George Whitfield, the great 18th century preacher, when he was preaching one of his great awakening sermons one, one day, he was preaching a text that he had preached many, many times before, which was John 3, perhaps Whitfield's favorite passage in Scripture. Well, and on this particular afternoon, a man had come to attend and listen to Whitfield. But he had come to, to do harm to him. He intended to, to kill Whitfield. He had filled his pockets with rocks, big rocks, so that he might, after the sermon, pull them out and plummet them toward Mr. Whitfield. And after the sermon, the man came to him and approached him and he said, I came to hear you with my pockets full of stones to break your head, but your sermon got the better of me and broke my heart. God had broken this man. A man who was bitter, a man who was hell-bent on evil, and in the midst of the preaching of his word, gave this man a new heart. Friend, there is hope for you and me. But God takes the hardest hearts and gives them new ones. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy and love you've shown us in Christ. We trust that we are undeserving and unmeriting. You have taken what was once rebels and welcomed them to your table. We trust today that all that we have is through our union with Christ and through Christ alone we pray. Amen.